You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. And SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is co-host David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. I am well, Giles. I trust all our listeners are making the most of their of their time. Uh, uh, from what I hear, the podcast industry is becoming uh, uh, very crowded these days because we, we all want to do something with the time we spend at, ti- at, at home. So I trust everyone else is getting back to work again. Yeah, well, look, I mean, trying to trying to find a spot for a webinar these days is pr- pretty hard. Um, it's um, it's it's incredibly crowded. But look, it's 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 a, it's a good thing. We don't have conferences, and um, a webinar and a podcast is a great way to bring interesting people to um, talk to listeners and um, and have great conversations. And look, we've got one of these today, David. Um, earlier on, before your game of tennis, we um, spoke to David Griffin. He's the CEO of Sun Cable. Um, Sun Cable, by any means, is an extraordinarily ambitious project backed by Cannon Brooks and um, Twiggy Forest, um, at least to feasibility stage for the study. Um, it involves 10 gigawatts of solar and a massive amount of battery storage exporting to Singapore. Um, I think I've got a few things to say about this, David, but look, why don't we just hop straight into the interview with uh, David Griffin, the CEO of Sun Cable. David Griffin, uh, CEO of Sun Cable, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me, Giles. Sun Cable is an enormous project by any size. It is indeed the biggest project in the world. And just to recap for listeners, um, it's proposed to have 10 gigawatts of large-scale solar, um, something between about 22 gigawatt hours and 30 gigawatt hours of battery storage, which... uh, most of it will be at the solar farm and then in Darwin and Singapore. Um, and it includes a three and a half thousand kilometer undersea cable from Darwin to Singapore. That's about its rust um, vital statistics. Is that right, um, David? And I, th- I think about $20 billion all up. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's probably a, a smidge over twenty billion Australian dollars, but uh, yeah, that's the, the the key elements of it. That's right. This week, you've announced the first stage. Well, you know, it's not really the first stage of this project, is it? It's actually a standalone big battery proposed for the Darwin Catherine grid, which you say can actually operate by itself, but then could actually get included or absorbed and and, and form a part of the even bigger project, which I guess we're not going to see happen for another three years as you go through the incredibly, I'd imagine, complex and detailed process of modelling and getting the finance and things like that. First of all, why don't you just tell us a little bit about this Darwin project and, and, and why it's attractive to you and why you're going ahead and ahead with it or looking to sure. go ahead with it <clears throat> sure uh, we we always knew in in developing our australia asean power link in developing that system we would need a significant size battery in darwin and in singapore uh, for our own purposes um, provision of contingencies and the like but um, in the process of of developing the design for that that battery in Darwin, uh, it became apparent there's actually a, a pretty good market for, uh, or there's, there's a strong demand for a battery in the Darwin market right now. Um, and uh, following through on that, it gave us an opportunity to uh, trial uh, a number of concepts and uh, flush out any um, regulatory issues that we might encounter uh, with the broader project um, by developing uh, what we've called the middle arm battery. And uh, so we've now got development approval for that that battery. Um, its primary role is provision of synthetic inertia, but there is, uh, you know, as with every battery, there's an opportunity to uh, value stack uh, there and provide uh, other services. Um, as I said, it, it's pretty clear to us that there's a there's, there's a real value to the provision to the uh, installation of a battery in Darwin. Uh, one of the big issues we've still got to get past is whether or not we actually get paid for providing that value. 
you need regulatory changes, which is a bit of the story yeah. across the uh, rest of the Australian grid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So people uh, can see value, but they can't see a market. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So look, it, it's not uh, we're not on our own uh, in in terms of that. There's a broad uh, realization uh, that um, the uh, the circumstances need to change in the Darwin Catherine integrated system in order to get lower cost provision of uh, of ancillary services and the like into that network. So I think there's a real desire to see uh, change and 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 um, uh, but yeah we'll we'll see what uh, the regulators come up with over over the coming twelve months or so. But yeah we're, we're confident we can get to a point where uh, commercially that will make the battery work. And how much are you spent proposing to spend on this? It's about a hundred megawatt, two hundred megawatt hour battery. I mean, that's not a small thing. No, uh, and look, uh, the that, that's what we've got to prove to install right now. Uh, we are still working through what the optimal sizing of that battery will be, and you know, a big part of that answer is is how the regulations pan out. So. Um, I would estimate that it's going to be at least uh, a 50 megawatt battery, but uh, we've still got work to do on that. So. Mm. Mm. And, and uh, it will ultimately, or whatever the battery is, it will then ultimately um, become part of the Australia ASEAN power link as well, because we will need a much larger battery than that located in Darwin to support the operations of the Australia ASEAN power link. Sure. And this is about really just actually just sort of um, pushing out gas, isn't it? Uh, it's um, you'll be the idea of the battery is to require less spinning reserve because I mean Darwin and, and mm. Catherine Grid is essentially powered by gas at the moment, but um, gas like anything needs backup because uh, th things can go wrong or things change. So it's got spinning reserve sitting in the background, and the idea of this battery, rather like the Mount Newman battery in the Pilbara, which is another gas um, gas dominated grid and had um, a lot of spinning reserve to back up the gas generators, um, something yeah. that we sometimes forget in the general dialogue around um, renewables and energy in Australia. And so this battery will basically allow for much, if not all, of that spinning reserve to be sidelined, um, save on costs, save on emissions, and um, reduce the need to have that sort of backup generation operating. That, that, that's precisely right. Um, and uh, so it reduces that gas consumption and all of the benefits that go with that and it reduces the cost, associated costs. Uh, beyond that, it's, there's, a, there's a potential value stack uh, that could be applied subject to how regulations pan out and the like. One other uh, um, issue that we can uh, address is... Uh, uh, intermittent generators in that grid, they need to forecast about 35 minutes, they need to forecast 35 minutes ahead. Um, if you're a solar farm, there's a number of ways you can do that. One way is to rely on, you could either install a battery at your own generation site, or you could uh, rely on the services from a centrally located battery. Uh, I guess our argument is that um, if, you, if you're, and, and there are a lot of um, medium scale solar farms that want to connect into that, that network. Um, if they have to install a battery at each one of their sites, uh, we think that's a quite inefficient way uh, and therefore, and that flows through to the cost of providing electricity into the grid um, to, to meet the uh, generator performance standards. We think that, you know, if you take, for example, a, uh, a a uh, solar farm that's located, if there's two, two solar farms, they're located a couple of hundred kilometres away from each other on the Darwin Catherine integrated system. Each solar farm might determine they need 20 megawatts of, uh, of battery installed uh, to cover them for, the, for uh, unexpected cloud cover or something of that nature. But the likelihood of that cloud cover hitting both solar farms unexpectedly at the same time is very low. Uh, so if that service is actually provided by a centralised battery, uh, a smaller battery is required and therefore the costs associated with, with delivering that service are reduced. Hmm. Let's go, I'm sure David's busting to ask a question, so I'll just lead into, just let's go on to the bigger project, um, Sun Cable. I mean, this is extraordinary scale. Where are you at with this? You've just commissioned a, a survey of the subsea, um, well, the, the ocean bed, I guess it is, and just to make sure you can actually put a cable down there and what sort of issues you may come to arrive. And just sort of describe to us, you know, where you're at and what you need to do to actually get this project going. 
Sure. Well, this, on the subsidy survey, that's a, a major milestone uh, to get to the point where we've now uh, commissioned that work. Uh, we have Guardian Geomatics, which is a Perth-based company, undertaking that survey. Um, the uh, the whole route is actually 3,700 kilometres from, from Darwin to Singapore. Uh, it varies quite a bit. Um, in terms of the nature of what's uh, below the um, the, the uh, ocean there, and um, we have to understand in great detail uh, the bathymetry. You think of the, the topography of the sea floor. Uh, we have to understand what's happening in the water column um, from a temperature perspective, currents, which are important for considering how the cables get laid and the like. Um, the nature of the seafloor, because there will be areas along the route, considerable areas along the route where we need to bury the cable. So we need to understand, is that hard rock, is it mud, is it silt or, or, or sand? Um, they, all these sorts of, uh, all this sort of data needs to come in in order for us to be able to undertake the detailed design work on, on those cables. Um, so that's pretty critical and uh, for the vast bulk of the route, it's relatively speaking pretty shallow waters and that depth is pretty well understood. So Dave, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the uh, bigger part of the project. I'd like to start from the Singapore end. Can you remind me very briefly who, who your uh, counterparty or proposed counterparty on the Singapore side of things is? <clears throat> sure. Uh, so the Singapore market is not too dissimilar from the Australian national electricity market, if you think of it in that way. So um, there's a, they have 30-minute settlement, and uh, as we know, for the time being, we do too. Who knows how long? Um, the, uh, so the, there is an opportunity to, uh, to sell directly into that uh, market on a spot basis, um, Similar but but slight, somewhat different opportunities to sell uh, effectively a corporate PPA as well. Um, but, but but you don't have a, a party like SG Power or one of the other uh, major parties in Singapore that sort of uh, I guess actively promoting from their side this project. No, I mean the uh, SP Power uh, SP Group is responsible for undertaking. Uh, system studies and things of that nature when, uh, uh, as we go through that process. But um, no, they don't necessarily need to uh, purchase the, uh, the electricity or anything like that. It's up to us really to find uh, the right uh, customers. And that's... And, that... and, and so, and, and so um, I guess the energy demand in Singapore is about 50 terawatt hours a year. Uh, 75% of it, I think, is produced by gas, more electricity, more or less at the moment. And uh, at least they charge their customers about, as near as I can work out, 120 Singapore dollars uh, a megawatt hour. I mean, mm. um, the output from this project from 10 gigawatts of power, I don't know, can I, what's the capacity factory of these Maverick units? I mean, they're so unusual, it's it's hard to <laughs> just compare them mm. to your usual single-axis tr trackers. Uh, well, I, look, I'm, I, yeah, we don't even really bother trying to compare them to uh, conventional solar. Um what what we're fundamentally focused on and issued focused on in terms of our design is being able to obviously deliver the lowest uh, cost of electricity to the Darwin and Singapore customers. So when it comes to um, uh, the the Singapore market that we're trying to address, uh, as you said, yeah, that, that's a very heavily dominated uh, gas market. It's actually more like ninety five percent. Um, gas and uh, of that, um, uh, a majority is is sourced from pipe gas from Malaysia and Indonesia, and then the rest is LNG. But uh, that pipe gas is really scheduled to deplete or be redirected for domestic purposes in those two supply countries um, by about twenty twenty five. So on a business as usual basis, um, the authorities will need to rely on LNG far more heavily than they do now and uh, build out as much solar as they, they 
feasibly can within their within the constraints of, of their landmass and the like. So, um, for for those so, so, reasons, so, yeah, yeah. But yeah. can I just? I, I'm still unclear. What kind of capacity factor can we expect out of uh, that 10 gigawatts of solar in in the Northern Territory? Well, bear in mind, we're, we're not uh, just uh, running, it's not a run of plants, so we're not just generating and exporting. Um, the solar farm is 10 gigawatts, but our export capacity is 3 gigawatts. And the surplus uh, during the day will be used to charge the batteries. And uh, I guess where I was going with the, the Singapore market is that uh, we're still working with potential off-takers to determine uh, exactly what their diurnal profile is. And uh, if the answer to that question is it's just flat a flat load that we're trying to supply, that means that the, the swing factor, i.e. the amount of batteries and how we use those batteries, will have to change accordingly. Uh, but if uh, the optimum outcome is to largely follow the diurnal spot price in Singapore, then we'd be looking to discharge to 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 uh, export a lot more during daylight hours a bit in the you know quite a bit in the evening and then uh, quite a small amount through the early hours of the of the morning and all these things have a big impact on the design of particular as I said that swing factor issue of the the sizing of the battery so we've got that three gigawatts of capacity um, we can fill that three gigawatts of capacity so in effect it's a hundred percent that's probably not going to look particularly good from a uh, from an economic perspective so we've really it, you know when you, to go to your question what's the capacity factor we will design the capacity factor to be to meet the economic requirements it's not it's a capacity factor is not an outcome and not an accident or an outcome of um, the environmental conditions capacity factors an outcome of our design process and with a project of this complexity it's it, it's quite different from say a 100 megawatt solar farm or a 200 megawatt wind farm we have a lot more in common with the nature of a very large scale oil uh, offshore oil and gas project than we do with say a, a medium you know a decent sized wind or solar farm in terms of uh, the complexity and that oil and gas industry for for all of its uh, its sins has decades many many decades of no uh, I, I, I get that I, I've, I've looked at, I followed the construction of the LNG projects and uh, you could look at the this one on Northern Territory but I just, I'm still not at all clear Dave I apologize for harping on this point so the idea is to fill up the three gigawatt pi- um, uh, t- transmission line, which will, I estimate, well, based on the Chinese ones, will cost about US five and a half billion or something, five billion. But but it, the idea is to fill up the, the three gigawatt uh, uh, transmission line and, and, and run that flat out or or, or, or not? Or, well, it, you answered it, run it flat out or not. So the, the answer is it depends on what our customers want. And when when we've settled on that, that's a uh, that question is a core base data input. Right? So uh, we, the the complexity of this system because we're not building a solar farm and we're not building a solar farm with battery storage. We're building a system that extends over four thousand five hundred kilometres, and there are literally millions of potential inputs to that system. And it's well beyond any human's capabilities to work out what the optimum design for that system is. We know what the optimum outcome. We know what outcome we want to achieve. But, yeah, but to we're, work, we're, we're only Dave. We're only we only humans on this phone call, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. um, or at least Giles may be superhuman with all the work he does, but I'm I'm somewhat subhuman most of the time. Um, I just so I mean, if you, ten gigawatts of solar, like traditional solar, produces something like fifteen, eighteen terawatt hours of electricity per year, which is mm. you know something like thirty to forty percent of the total electricity demand in 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 Singapore. Is 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 that what you're actually targeting to do? Very very roughly. 
yeah, they're not uh, they're not bad numbers. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, fairly you know within the uh, acceptable range. That's pretty pretty accurate. But we're not sending. Um, remember, we've got to uh, we've got to utilize the transmission capacity efficiently. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're utilizing it to its full capacity on a twenty four hour basis. Um, we've got to take into account. Um, uh, as the customer's requirements, we've got to take into account uh, round-trip efficiencies on the batteries and things of that nature, and we've got to take into account the um, once we finally settle on the, the configuration of the HVDC system, um, the losses associated with that and those losses change with the operating pr um, profile, particularly the diurnal operating profile. So where I was getting at was... Just, just to talk on those losses, I mean, and I'll hand it back to Charles in a second. Um, well, actually, I've I, I got two, two very quick questions. The, the losses, I, I mean, if I, at, if, I, if I look at the uh, DC profiles in Australia, uh, people talk about, say, uh, for a South Australia to, to Queensland pro, or New South Wales project, losses, DC losses using, I think what they say is VSC voltage source converters or something of about three or four percent for 2,000 kilometres. I mean, it'll be a bit more going to Singapore, will it? It will. Yeah, most certainly it will. But again, um, the losses are an outcome of the laws of physics and design. So uh, we have, you know, within the constraints of the laws of physics, we can design those losses. Uh, we can chase ever smaller losses, but they come at an economic cost. So our linear optimization model is the thing that we're utilising to, to help determine for us what the right design is and, and what the right diurnal operational profile is as well. And just coming back again, trying to keep it really simple, uh, you know, everyone else in the world pretty much uh, who builds utility solar is going for, you know, like single axis tracking, uh, um, uh, and adding a battery on or whatever um, and aiming for, I don't know, AC capacity factors uh, of 30%, uh, let's say, maybe it's 32 or 33% in the Northern Territory. But you guys have got this totally unusual system, uh, the Maverick system. Um, uh, I guess my question is, in two small parts, how much of that Maverick stuff has already been installed around the world in megawatts and what makes it attractive for this project? Sure. So at the moment, there's less, uh, less than 100 megawatts of Mavericks deployed. Um, that number's going up very rapidly and uh, I'll let 5B talk for itself uh, in, in due course about uh, its plans. Um, the... Uh, but as you get uh, one of the characteristics of the of the Maverick is that um, as you get closer to the equator, uh, the differential between single axis tracking and um, uh, the east west configuration of a, or the, the fixed east west array of of a Maverick uh, gets smaller and smaller. Now you overlay that with the fact that Mavericks are a much lower capital cost than conventional solar. Uh, much lower operational costs as well, and much lower insurance and costs, all those sorts of uh, associated costs, it comes out a long way ahead uh, from conventional solar. So that's why it's the obvious choice for us. And um, the uh, we, we, we've already deployed uh, one Maverick at site and we're about to deploy a second one um, one of the outcomes of, of building 10 gigawatts of solar versus, say, 100 megawatts of solar is that some of the things that you might let slide is it's just not worth the effort of fighting uh, with um, uh, due diligence uh, uh, engineers and the like. You might let slide on a 100 megawatt solar farm. You will not let slide on a 10 gigawatt solar farm. So we're doing extremely precise calculations in terms of things such as soiling, um, and because small, you know, points of a in terms of so, of soiling can translate to tens of millions of dollars in revenue per annum, so um, all those sorts of micro calculations are, are really getting a lot of attention from us as well. And um, yeah, so th there's a hell of a lot that we can tweak in the solar farm design that 
the Maverick is makes it very uh, you know it's very user friendly in terms of that. Plus, it's extremely energy dense relative to conventional solar. So you're talking about twice the energy density. So you need half the land. Um, yeah, and and that obviously then flows through to other benefits, reduced internal losses, um, fits well with potential for DC coupling of um, batteries and and solar, etc. I'll, I'll hand back to Charles. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, no, I've just got a couple of questions. Um, so battery storage, have you done any sort of, have you got any idea of what sort of battery storage that um, you'd like to put in place? I mean, that'd be one hell of, hell of a contract to, to win for someone. It's, it's, a, it's such a dynamic market. It's such a dynamic piece of technology um, where obviously, you know, uh, going through that process uh, carefully, uh, we're also aware that, Given that our timeframes, we're starting construction beginning of 2024. Uh, that battery probably doesn't, presumably, doesn't exist at the moment. So uh, there are, and and frankly, by the time we finish construction, um, the battery that we start with probably will have moved on as well. Yeah. So um, it, there's uh, a number of assumptions that we're going to have to make uh, in that. I, I presume you've got a long queue forming at your do- outside your door, though. Yeah, yeah. Look, there's there's a lot of great, and this is a good problem, right? There's so many fantastic technologies out there, and um, uh, it's it's a function. We have to understand what the capability is now, and then get a good good grip on where that technology is travelling to between now and then. Now, what about domestic consumption in Northern Territory? I mean, you're talking about exporting an awful lot of it to Singapore, and that may be your major market, and obviously the reason why you're going to build a, um, um, as David suggested, up to $5 billion worth of um, subsea cable. But um, the Northern Territory market is not a big one. I mean, you'd flood that sort of 20 or 30 times over if you put that there. Um, is there is, is there potential for expanding demand there by having an increased manufacturing base? Is that somehow being factored into this 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 wonderful model that you're putting together which will uh yeah so sort of, um... as you said the darwin the darwin catherine integrated system is not uh is not large the uh, there is absolutely the uh, the opportunity to materially increase that load um there are a number of industries that want to expand in the darwin region uh, one of the key criteria uh, for some of those industries is that they have to get 100% renewables and they can't do that at the moment. Uh, and for all of those prospective supplies, they need cost-effective electricity. So there is an element of... What's uh, your... Sorry. Sorry, what sort, what, what sort of industry wants 100% renewables? I mean, that's good to hear, but um, who's saying that? Well, da- yeah, data centres is, uh, is probably the obvious example. They've led the world with uh, starting out with uh, commitments to get... Uh, 100% renewables, but really starting with offsets, but now moving to a position where they need 100% renewable electricity supplied to their door. Mm, so, interesting. so that's a, that's a, a really key industry. We know, yeah, as we speak, the um, uh, the fibre network uh, between Darwin and the East Coast is being materially upgraded. Uh, and uh, there are a number of propositions to uh, develop fiber, new fibre links from Darwin to Asia as well. So it's strategically uh, very well positioned for uh, a, a new data centre industry. Um, the government's mm-hmm. certainly taking a lot of steps to, uh, to, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. One more question before I hand back, down, back to David and... Um... Hydrogen is that is that an element? Um, everyone's talking. Other people are talking about sort of similar size uh, renewable energy projects. I think you've got the Asia Renewable Energy Hub and the Pilbara talking about um, up to fifteen gigawatts of wind and solar. I think there's another one supported by Siemens for five gigawatts. I think BP are talking about a one gigawatt, one point five gigawatt one in uh, the Midwest region of Western Australia. You've only talked about cable so far, but is hydrogen also a possibility? Uh, look, our view is that exporting electricity, exporting electrons is uh, far more efficient uh, uh, means to transmit energy to Asia. However, uh, if you do want to have a successful hydrogen industry, uh, there's probably three, uh, the few key criteria that, that have to be improved or, or, or um, met. 
one of them is uh, cost of electrolyzers has to come down, efficiencies, all that sort of stuff have to go up. Um, you have to get an efficient uh, desalination process. Uh, but just as importantly, you must have low-cost, uh, high volumes of renewable electricity. And uh, we see hydrogen as just a, another, you know, any, if someone wants to establish hydrogen in Darwin, then we're more than happy to provide them with the massive volumes of competitively priced renewable electricity that they need to make that work. Uh, but for us, uh, actually making hydrogen, that's, that's not in our business case. David? Uh, well, I don't have uh, much more in the way of questions. I have a comment, more or less, and that is, again, drawing on the LNG experience and having looked at a lot of big projects, I do think that the uh, financial capacity of the consortium partners and uh, the counterparty arrangements are very important in these big projects when it comes to exactly how seriously people are going to take them. If you look at the Queensland LNG projects, whether it was Petronas and Total, uh, whether it was um, 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 uh, Sinopec from China in the Origin case, uh, partnering with Conoco, or, or um, uh, BG Group from the UK at the time, partnering uh, in what's become a Shell project now. Uh, it's it's the quality of those counterparties that ends up convincing people that this project is is you know how many legs it's got. Um, uh, and that would uh, I, it would be great if I could see that there was the interest on the Singapore side uh, that there clearly is from the Australian side. That's that would just be a comment. Maybe David, you could go to some of those questions about the investors. I mean, we know that uh, Mike Cannon Brooks, uh, software billionaire, and the resources billionaire Andrew Twiggy Forrest have uh, backed. Um, I think it's in the tens of millions of dollars for the various feasibility studies that you're undertaking, including that subsea mapping exercise. Have you um, gotten, I mean, you probably can't tell us who it is, but I mean, um, has this sort of stoked interest from other people um, wondering about how this project might work? Uh, look, it, it absolutely has. And I'd, I would love to address David's comment more directly. But as you can imagine, that's all um, uh, you know, also extremely sensitive um, and we'll we'll talk about those topics in detail at the right time, um, but uh, I, I agree the the counter quality of the counterparties is is a critical part of this entire process. Yeah. Well, I don't suppose you're going to get a a. Um, a uh quality investor unless he actually sees the uh, counterparty on the other side. Um, I think that'd be a fundamental thing. Um, yeah. You said it's um, this modelling's all too hard for a human, so um, who or what is doing it? <laughs> uh, we, look, we've, de we've developed internally, we've got mathematicians and the like on, on board that are, we've developed a linear optimization model, a, a artificial intelligence uh, system, if you like, that uh, is um, helping us to understand what the optimal preliminary design will look like. Um, there is a uh, myriad of different configurations that we can utilise uh, from the solar farm end through to the, uh, the the overland transmission and in the uh, the submarine cable configurations, um, plus in the configurations within the voltage source converters, etc. They all have uh, you know major pros and cons, and uh, we've got a, uh, we we need the assistance of that system to put it all together and come out with a sensible preliminary design, which we then undertake the, the detailed design of. Dave, how many, people have, got, uh, how many people have you got uh, working on the project more or less full-time at the moment? Yeah, oh, at the moment uh, we're about 15, but we're still building. Uh, and uh, we're, there's more. We're at the moment we're, we're, we're more on, we've got more external consultants than we do within the, the team of 15 at the moment, but that is changing over time. Uh, we are developing this Australia ASEAN Power Link, but that is only the first of the of the projects. So we're actually developing a long term uh, development team capability, and uh, we'll need a lot more than the, uh, the the current size of the team we have at the moment. It's good to see you're not biting off more than you can chew. That's, that's terrific, Dave. I'm proud. That's all. <laughs> You didn't, David. You didn't just suggest, just suggest there that uh, there's more after this project. 
Well, there is no way in hell I am doing this once. <laughs> so what? What? It, so you're not going to do it once. Then where? Where are the other possibilities? More such projects of this scale in Australia, or do they? Will they have to occur overseas? Or, or can Australia, because it's got such wonderful solar resources, um, do this again and again? But we, uh, yeah. Ultimately, th this is the rest of my working life, and ultimately, the uh, we envisage a network that expands. That, that takes advantage of where the best renewable energy resource is, whether it's solar and wind in Australia, whether that's wind in New Zealand or solar and wind in India, and we're servicing all of the, uh, the customers in between. So uh, the potential for low growth in the ASEAN region is enormous. Um, and, you know, just look at Indonesia by itself, uh, subject to how COVID-19 plays out, that will be the fourth largest economy in the world in the 2020s. Um, and these are sorts of things that somehow in the Australian context, they seem to, yeah, they, they, we, we seem to miss that, um, the enormity of our uh, northern neighbours. And um, so uh, we absolutely are developing long-term plans to to serve those ever-growing loads north of Australia, uh, and to to do that by exploiting the you know where the renewable energy resource is best located, and utilising this uh, this capability for intercontinental HVDC transmission. So it won't, it might not just be a ten gigawatt project; it might in, end up being a network of tens and tens of gigawatts of. Well, gigawatts. I mean, we talked earlier about hydrogen, and you know, if you wanted to replicate the LNG industry from a hydrogen perspective, and to a lesser extent, this number applies to our industry as well. You are talking several hundred gigawatts of of generation capacity. So, um, and we've got the land to do that. Right. We, we have, it's an enormous amount of land, but we've got a much larger chunk of land. So uh, we're in a really fortunate position for that. So this is just the start. Correct. Correct. And the fact that you've got, the fact that you've gone and done the Darwin thing, or, or, or you're you're getting towards committing to that, suggests to me that you're um, more optimistic now, or more confident about this project than you were when you probably started off. Yeah, look, we, we have uh, developed an enormous amount of internal capability. Uh, I doubt there's a company in the world that has uh, a better understanding of the, um, the comprehensive uh, system dynamics of doing what we're proposing to do. Um, and it looks, you know, it looks extremely compelling. So um, mm -hmm. the, the early works that we're looking at in Darwin, whether it's the, the middle arm battery or developing a... Um, some uh, preliminary manufacturing capacity in Darwin to support the project. That's all. Uh, that's reflective of the fact that yeah, we are very confident about the prospects of the broader project. And I've just got one final technical question: um, the cable. We've seen the cable from um, Tasmania to Australia fail on occasions. If you've got one big cable supplying an awful lot of the Singapore powers, what's the resilience of that? What's the backup option? To that well, under no we are considering a lot of different cable configurations none of those involve a single cable um the uh if we look at the basslink cable you know it's it's old right um hvdc cable technology has been around for decades many decades um but if we look at the no disrespect to the uh basslink they use the technology that was available at the time but if 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 uh, I, I own a Tesla and uh, they own a Morris Minor. We both own cars, but they're somewhat different um, capabilities. So, <laughs> um, the technology has come along a hell of a long way and it's extremely robust. Um, if you ever get a chance to go to a cable factory, it's extraordinary uh, place to visit. But, um, yeah, this is extremely robust technology. We'd probably do owe a lot to the uh, rapid growth of the offshore wind farm industry uh, for for poor. As a result of that, a lot of money pouring into R and D on these different types of cables that are available now. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, that's that's led us to a situation where we can actually deploy the cables to get from Darwin to Singapore. 
David, I've probably got more questions, but look, I think we've done a, um, a good job there. Good half now. Look, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and um, good luck um, with your project. Good luck with your calculations. And um, if your artificial intelligence um, does come up with the right answer, then um, perhaps we can install them in the energy portfolio in Canberra as well. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dave. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And that was David Griffin, the CEO of Sun Cable. David, a wonderfully ambitious project, incredibly exciting, but um, so many dominoes to line up to make sure it works. A, um, a human couldn't even count them. No, it's 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 credibility. I mean, there's a lot. Of, it's fantastic to have these great ideas, and uh, it's like a lot of good ideas. It, it it probably can work in the spreadsheet, and they're giving it a, a darn good shot. But uh, I would caution that getting twenty billion dollars together is just not that easy. And uh, I, it's not the only project of this kind. Uh, CWP has a very good consortium. Uh, going with its idea to put wind and solar together on the northwest shelf and then make hydrogen. They were going to do a cable to Indonesia, but they've switched to hydrogen. And that would make you think a little bit. Uh, um, um, but I'm so sure the cable's completely technically doable. Um, you can, so it's, it's great to have these two massive projects, Giles, but I, I think we'll be talking to these guys every year for two or three years before we uh, actually know whether they're going to get it going or not. Well, definitely. And um, look, I rather suspect that um, like the first big battery they've done in Darwin, they'll probably end up doing things in stages and um, make a very big solar plant, at least in Australian comparators for um, local manufacturing and some sort of export. But I guess it does come if they're going to go export and, and for that distance, it would need to have scale of some sort. But anyway, look, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I do like these sort of stories and these sort of projects and these sort of dreams because they are what people are considering in the future. Ross Garneau talks about getting to 100% renewables and becoming a superpower. We had on the uh, podcast a few months ago, Darren Miller from um, Arena talking about 700% renewables, once again, focusing on these sort of projects exporting renewable hydrogen, really exciting stuff. It is certainly a change from what we've been given from the Australian government, where apparently the answer to every question is gas. Well, Giles, and there probably is some kind of role for gas for a while, but uh, no one that I know of seriously believes it's the answer to decarbonising the Australian economy. And as, as good as these big schemes are, shareholders, in my experience, investors have learnt to become very wary of them and will nearly always prefer a project where, you know, it can get done in a year or two and the risk is, is, is relatively measurable. And we should never forget about the value of incremental gains. So, you know, I, I focus, for instance, on like Portland aluminium smelter. I mean, can that thing ramp down and become a battery that's cheaper than, or a form of storage that's cheaper than other forms of storage and, and thereby let Victoria, which is moving up legally to 50% renewable energy, you know, can, can, can it be part of the system down there? Can it fit in? I mean, these are small incremental um, uh, problems in one sense that offer big incremental gains in decarbonising. And Giles, we won't talk about it anymore on this podcast, I guess, but I, I keep coming back to electric vehicles, which is the area I've been banging on about this for three or four years. And I know you've got separate podcasts, but uh, uh, the fact is that none of the state governments are, have done a thing about electric vehicles in any meaningful way. And it's so within their power to do things like regos uh, relief and to do uh, uh, parking uh, exemptions or cheap parking in the city for electric vehicles, things that would cost state governments next to nothing, have enormous carbon benefits, can accelerate a transition in an area, and, and, and yet nothing happens. Why is that, Giles? Why is it? Um, I, for the same reason that the answer to everything else is gas. Um, it is just a failure to imagine the future. Um, I've just been looking at a Bloomberg graph, and it's not just Bloomberg, it's some others who produce something similar. And it's the number of electric vehicles which are available, ele different electric vehicle models which are available around the world. And I think the number now is about 470. And granted, a fair amount of those are in China, but there's uh, several hundred, there's 175 available in Europe. I can't quite remember the number for the US, but in Australia you'd actually be struggling to um, bring together half a dozen. And uh, we might get another three or four over the next 12 months, but we've already heard that some 
manufacturers like Kia are actually not bringing their latest EVs to Australia because they can't see the point of it in the in, in the market because there's just no interest from the government and and not enough infrastructure. So um, look, I share your frustrations david it is uh, very frustrating we did see and, and in this Charles, um, we do have to mention or at least i want to draw our listeners attention to the amount of money that volkswagen one of the world's big manufacturers is putting into electric vehicles their first uh their very first model in what's going i mean they've put uh i think it's over 30 aussie billion dollars of investment they have bet the company pretty much on making evs work and the first model from that, the ID3, it's called, is just starting to prototypes have been road tested now in the UK and places. And just watch that space. Watch that space and try not to listen to uh, Jeremy Clarkson, the former guy from Top Gear, who I think needs driving lessons, um, at least as it re- refers to electric vehicles. I saw his piece in the Australian Weekend magazine the other day and um, just almost sort of cried and uh, cried in my afternoon cup of tea. It was um, so frustrating. Look, I do want to bring attention to talking about sort of scalable investments. Um, you've got a very, very good analysis on battery storage, um, which we're publishing today on Renew Economy, and I just don't want to publish that. I would sort of draw attention to that um, just um, because it is, it's scalable, it's modular, it's incredibly interesting. David, do you want to talk about it just for a, um, for a few seconds before we sign off? Well, uh, first, I want to make two or three quick points. Uh, um, and it's, uh, One is that uh, batteries are starting to be taken really seriously. When Next Era has got a uh, billion dollars worth of 2021 orders uh, for batteries and uh, over a gigawatt, I think it is of power. Um, uh, the market leader, probably still in utility space, Fluence is up to uh, two gigawatts of power. And I, there's a few bit of gossip around about what they're going to be doing. Um, and and Tesla, of course, which is the best marketer of the whole lot, uh, has got, I, I can't remember, it's like uh, three or four gigawatt hours of uh, battery orders. Uh, and accelerating, basically, more or less, that's all very exciting. And the cost reductions are clearly coming through, as you can see. Uh, uh, Edge, which is a company that hasn't got a big name in Australia, but has moved to number one in the global inverter market, um, hasn't even moved into the utility scale yet. And it's bought Cocam, uh, which is a South Korean battery manufacturer that some maybe remember. So it's clearly got ambitions. And we're seeing the subsidy-free batteries starting to make a move into Australia. Now, um, they're not really still... I, I want to caution everyone that utility-scale batteries, uh, in terms of time-shifting of energy, are still very iffy. Uh, uh, but but uh, they are van- their true value and the value that's going to get more and more recognised is in frequency control. And whilst there's a limited FCAS market and you're only going to need so many batteries to do the whole job... The, the truth is batteries' role in running the grid uh, is going to expand enormously. And, and all of this in Australia, like just about anything else, is being done without any federal government policy. I want to remind everyone that despite a technical technology roadmap, which is full of so many amateur arguments, and uh, it's just unbelievable how amateur it is. It, uh, it reminds me a lot of the old origin energy investments in geothermal and you know, high, um, uh, um, 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 hydro power from New Guinea and stuff that's just not carefully enough thought through that technology roadmap. But the point is, that is not a policy. There is no actual formal federal government policy of any serious significance in, in electricity, in uh, decarbonising oil and gas, uh, and in decarbonising heavy industry. Zero policy. I mean, how can that be? Yeah, exactly. Well, Australia, or if you remember, has signed on supposedly for the Paris Climate um, uh, Agreement, which is um, whose goal it is to reach uh, zero net emissions by 2050, um, particularly for the 1.5 degree component. Um, but Australia has now indicated that it's not even going to change its current 2030 target at all and will not even unveil its 2035 target until 2025, another five years away. So there's absolutely no policy settings, there's no layout, there's no plan and you're absolutely right there's no point in having a technology roadmap if you don't know what the end destination is and if you know what the end destination is then you simply tell the market and let them and the technology figure it out and they'll do it much more efficiently than angus taylor in his um drawing room with his um with his dartboard 
Well, yes, I don't want to criticise individuals, but I'd point out that there are large business groups that would like to see a carbon price. Uh, there are big businesses, I keep coming back to aluminium, that given the right incentive, have a huge role to contribute uh, in the energy transition, a massive role. There are lots of industries that are energy intensive. Australia is the home of energy intensive industry. It's been based on cheap coal historically, but it can be based on cheap renewable energy going forward. But the whole process would be so much easier if we had a national roadmap and a plan. Uh, and, and, and there's no more to be said about it than that. But I would just urge anyone listening who is in a position to think about this to ask themselves how they can, not, not what the system can do for them, as John Kennedy, speechwriter, said, but what they can do to help this uh, transition happen. What I'm looking forward to teasing out this idea of the Portland um, smelter as a battery. I think that's quite fascinating and just a real pointer to why you people are thinking completely different about the grid and using an asset who you would think would be would survive only in the case of having a base load. And the idea that it could actually play this quite dynamic role um, in a new grid by um, turning off its demand needs um, when um, when and where it suits. So I'm um, looking forward to teasing out that one. I just want to thank um, David Griffin for joining us today. It was a fascinating discussion about a very ambitious project, and we wish them all the best. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, which is Solaray Energy and Evergen. We do thank you for that. Um, I'd like you to point to the Solar Insiders podcast and also to our very first webinar, talking about webinars and sort of cluttering the airways. We've got a, a, a pretty interesting webinar next week. Um, on solar and bifacial technology. So um, please join us for that one. And um, in the meantime, David, great to have you on board again. And uh, we'll talk again next week. I look forward to that, Charles. Cheers now. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, a market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.